Hey everyone, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you're joining me from. My name is Barton Siever. I'm a chef, author, husband, father, joining you from the ragged, jagged, delicious coast of Maine, where my wife and two boys and I live in this wonderful place, in this wonderful kitchen. Um, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. This is our last, uh, well, my last open office hours of the year. It's hard to believe that 2021, uh, wow, it's even weird to say that. 2021 is coming to an end soon, but at least that means the holidays, which are the greatest season. So uh, any of you who've joined before like to know, like to know that I like to start off with a little bit of gratitude because, well, cooking is an act of love. It is an act of kindness. It is something that we do through ourselves for the benefit of others. It is just such a wonderful thing. And the very greatest ingredient that we can ever use is gratitude for what we have in front of us and for those who we are able to feed. And well, in America, we've just had a holiday. People in places we give thanks for is what we call it, what I call the, uh, uh, the holiday, but um, so a little bit of gratitude is well. This week, my my grand my uh, my boy's grandparents, my my wife's parents were able to come up for a week and spend some time with their beloved little grandchildren, and it was such a wonderful week. And the reunion of vaccinated family has been so wonderful. Um, and with that, also my son got his second vaccine last night. My little five year old Alden, and I am just grateful for that. He did very well on both of his vaccines, very, very well. Only his father broke down in tears because it was such a momentous moment. I mean, what a crazy world we live in. What a crazy world we live in. And what a nice little moment it was to share with him. And then we got ice cream and he chose chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry <laughs> because he's awesome. And so with that, let's dive into the questions here. All right, first one from Alexis R. And I like this one. How do culinary professionals dry, manage dry skin and hands in the kitchen? Wow. Um, yeah, I haven't been asked a beauty question before. This is wonderful. It's not really beauty. It's a function question, of course, and comfort. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's simply hydration is what I found. Uh, yes, there are certain tasks in a kitchen where you're going to be washing your hands very constantly, as we all are for the past couple of years, etc. There are going to be tasks that are more grating on your hands than others. Uh, but really, the key is internal hydration is what I always found. Um, going into my shifts, going into anything, you know, hydration, I, I don't, know the latest science on it. I've seen some uh, disparagement recently of, of drinking, you know, your eight glasses of water a day or whatever it is. I don't know about that. All I know is my anecdotal experience that says when I am hydrated, when I am drinking well, my hands uh, reap the benefits of that and I get a lot less dry skin. The other thing is just to have a uh, just to have a moisturizer around. I mean, in my kitchen, we, we have it literally just next to the stove. I have a little bottle of uh, a moisturizer and you know it, it's on the hands in and out of the door so that's all i can say is that it's mostly probably about prep and your lifestyle and how you treat your hands outside of the kitchen that's really going to make the difference in it hey thanks alexis i appreciate you joining me today great question that was fun all right from mary m hi friend i'm wondering if you could explain the difference between the term chef and cook Ooh, getting into the social hierarchy of kitchens here uh, so traditionally, the, those terms, well, cook not, but cuisinier, cuisinier, uh, which is the French terminology for cook, is uh, comes from, it gets handed down from the French brigade system, which is sort of the, uh, 
I wouldn't say universal, but a mostly most often employed system of management in classic French kitchens, where you have the executive chef or the the grand cuisinier. Uh, then you have various underling chefs, sous chefs, chef de parties, and then cuisiniers or cooks. So typically, chef uh, is a term that re that. Re uh, corresponds to a professional executive level uh, culinarian, right? And that a cook uh, is both a sort of entry level position, the one on the line doing the work, but also sort of the person at home who is doing the cooking is, is the cook. So it implies both a sort of entry level professional position as well as the universal experience of the home cook. Uh, but you'll also hear people refer to as a home chef, etc. So here's the thing. There's a little bit of history behind these terms. There's a little bit of pomp and circumstance in it. If you call a chef, a haughty, egotistical chef, a cook, they might not like it. That's on them, not on you and your vocabulary. But um, yeah. So there you go. A little bit of a roundabout answer, giving you a little bit of history to it. But ultimately, uh, yeah, there's sort of more honorifics than anything else. All right, I hope that helps. Thanks, Mary, appreciate it. I'm also curious why you would ask that question. I'm wondering what uh, sort of context that, that came up in which that was a debated point. So maybe around the Thanksgiving table, who knows? But if you, if you care to, share that with us, please. All right, from Sherry B, <coughs> excuse me. Hi there, nice to see you again. Uh, I hope you had a lovely holiday. I did, yes. Am I still working and traveling the world as an explorer for National Geographic Society? Any documentaries about your work with them? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, so in, as part of my bio, I, when I left restaurants uh, over, almost over 10 years ago now, uh, I had the opportunity to step out into the world as an explorer for National Geographic, and my work focused on sustainability of marine food systems and their impacts, sort of macro impacts on public health. Um, did a lot of work around sustainability with consumers, around sustainability, uh, heart-healthy omega-3 fatty acids in the populations that need those in their, in their diets, as well as maternal health. Uh, around omega-3 fatty acids, as well as uh, toxicity concerns, specifically methylmercury. So a lot of that work, uh, I wouldn't say it wrapped up, but rather it evolved, uh, as well as the National Geographic Society. So I was an explorer, I was a fellow, um, and I was very active there for about eight years, six, uh, eight, seven, eight years. Uh, and then sort of the scope of work that I was doing, I wouldn't say it ended, but it sort of took a, a different path. I also took a position at Harvard, um, which became my principal focus, uh, where I was the director of the Health and Sustainable Food Program at the Center for Health and Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, which is a ridiculously long name for anything. But anyway, uh, so... All of this to, to offer up a little bit of bio to, to those of you who don't know and, and to give some context to Sherry's question here. So I am I am still on the in the family as an explorer at National Geographic, but I am no longer sort of under active protocol there, active work or any projects. Um, and some of the work that I had, most of it was really with the society, which is not National Geographic television uh, or media. So a lot of it was, was sort of undocumented, if you will. Um, but, uh, 
Yeah, so there's a there was a series that we did. A very young, very naive little boy, Bart, uh, did a series called Cookwise with National Geographic, which was really fun. Uh, I think there was eight episodes or so, and you can find that on YouTube. I haven't thought about that one in a very long time. Wow. Uh, I also had a TV show called In Search of Food, uh, which, uh, Sherry, you might go back and find. I think that those are on YouTube as well, In Search of Food, Barton Seaver. If you just Google that, it'll probably come up. So uh, I'm sorry, not to just give you all a list of things I've done, but rather uh, to say, Sherry, to, to answer your question, it's not National Geographic stuff necessarily, but it is out there. It is uh, part of my early work around sustainability, and I appreciate you asking. And for the rest of you, I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit more about myself. Thank you, Sherry. It's kind of you. Appreciate the attention. All right. From Mary Ellen B. Hi there, friend. Working through knife skills segment of, of the pro course, struggling to keep knife against my knuckles as I rock my knife. Working through lingering effects of left side paralysis. Oh, boy. Uh, is it absolutely necessary that it's right against for success? Uh, well, I'm sorry to hear of your troubles, but I'm glad that you are you are progressing through that. Uh, it, no, it is not absolutely necessary. Up against the knuckles is really key for safety, really more than anything else, and for consistency of cut because it just gives you um, a non-variable, which is you have that solid surface against which to press, whereas the knife moves and the, the whatever you're cutting moves as well. Um, and so this becomes your central sort of point of control. Uh, it does not have to be right up against it. In fact, uh, really the point of this is to maintain a firm grip on whatever it is you are cutting. Uh, the one thing I would suggest is that if you do have space between your knife and your knuckles, definitely have your knuckles up if you can. Don't have your fingertips out, right? It's very hard to cut something vertically with the knife, it's very easy to cut something perpendicularly, right? So as best you can, have them vertical to hold and then hold the knife wherever is most comfortable to you. Uh, and if any of that is of concern, um, consider just trying to, uh, there are a couple of knife guards out there. I, I, I'm not familiar with them, but check them out. And if there's one that could potentially help by sort of giving you added leverage with your ability uh, of your left hand, um, but also to keep you safe there and to control that, I, I might suggest taking a look at that. But hey, I appreciate you being a part of the Ruby family and for all the work that you're doing and progressing through knife skills. So go get them. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mary Ellen. All right, from Mary M. Uh, oh, again, you're learning to become an instructor for whole food plant-based foods, and I was just curious about these titles. Oh, of course. Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate you handing us that context for that. It was for the context for the chef or cook um, title. So if you're going to be an instructor there, Mary, I would definitely adopt the chef title um, as it just conveys a greater level of achievement, uh, but also conveys a professionality to it as well. So there you go. Chef Mary M. It's got a nice ring to it now, doesn't it? Go you. Good for you. Appreciate what you're doing. All right. Um, from Chris. Hey, friend. Nice to see you. Noticed in an uh, ATK cook, um, America's Test Kitchen cookbook salmon recipe, the nutrition information per serving distinguished between farmed salmon and wild salmon. Uh, and the farm was significantly higher in calories per serving. Can I elaborate on this, especially around what the farmed salmon are being fed? Well, 
Well, Chris, you come to the right person now. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I do have an answer for you there. The reason why is that farm salmon tends to be a lot higher in fat content than wild salmon, specifically when you get into some of the leaner of the wild salmon, such as pink, sockeye, and uh, chum salmon or kita salmon. Coho salmon is a really nice balance. King salmon is very fatty, so those are the five wild species. Uh, that said, a lean wild salmon is still a very fatty fish. Pink salmon still has, I think, uh, 1,100 grams of uh, milligrams of fat or so, um, most omegas in there. Um, so it's still a very, a, a very rich fish. But farm salmon tends to be a lot richer. Um, and so that's the difference there, just simply in the calories there. Uh, and what they're being fed is more so and more so they're being fed a, a more a vegetarian diet. Um, they used to be fed almost entirely a fish meal and fish oil. So basically fish that had been rendered down into two components, protein and oil. Uh, now they're oftentimes being fed uh, various vegetable byproducts, uh, various vegetables themselves. Some there's some soy meal, some, cor some corn meal as well put in there. Um, just sort of a host of other agricultural products. But instead of the fish meal and the fish oil, now there's a number of uh, really visionary and leading farmers that are looking at uh, micro and macro algaes, so various seaweeds basically, uh, that are being fermented and put into the diet as a means to replace fish oil. And in fact, the omega-3 counts and the fat content coming out of this uh, is, is very high. Um, and in fact, you know, omega-3s in the marine food system are in fact created through photosynthetic energy in plankton and then uptaken throughout the food chain. So this is basically just going back to step one. So this is not genetic engineering by any means. This is literally just kind of tweaking diets uh, and finding new and visionary solutions. So. There's some bad stuff, certainly, that still happens in farm salmon as well and stuff that I wish they wouldn't feed them. There's a lot of not a GMO soy that is in uh, some farm salmon feeds, and I would love to see that uh, phased out more and more. Uh, but that said, I'm not going to pick on a, farm, a salmon farmer because I spent 20 years getting them to not use fish oil, uh, to use anything else, and, and soy was the next thing. So part of this problem is a problem that I created myself. So... Uh, it's all part of an evolutionary process of an industry that I think is vital and necessary and really inspiring. Um, so I get a bit of a long answer for you there, but I love to give a lot of context to your questions because I know they're very thoughtful. You put a lot into what you do, Chris, and I appreciate you coming and joining us again as you do so regularly. It's nice to see you. All right. Um, oh, another one from Mary M. Ooh, very active chef, Mary M. Mary M. Instructor. Uh, she, she started for the Forks Over Knives course uh, beginning on January 4th with an expected graduation date in April. You have access to the course now. Should you begin now or can you? should you wait till January? You know what? We just, we, as part of the process, we throw open the course as soon as you register for it. So you just have additional time. If you start now, <coughs> your end date will still be the same. Uh, and there's nothing, there's no pluses or minuses for starting early other than you have more time. So please dive in. Enjoy. We'd love to have you as part of the family. All right. Another one from Mary. Are you the best pots and pans in the kitchen? Well, that's a thing. Uh, and do you recommend a brand of nonstick? So what are the best pots and pans in the kitchen is a big question that starts with economics. Um, 
starts also it, it, it involves also uh, aesthetics and functionality. So economics, uh, just decide where you are first and foremost. Like I saved up for years. Like I didn't, I forewent, forewent uh, Christmas and birthday presents for a couple of years in order to save up for a pan of Lamborghini, like just the Ferraris of the pan world, which are Moviel copper pans, uh, which are, hold on one second, I'll be right back with you. Which are uh, just best and only described as sexy. <laughs> they just make me happy. They're so substantial and they're incredible. And if you turn the heat on, basically the pan is now too hot to touch. It's that fast. They are nearly solid copper. Uh, the conductivity of those are amazing. It, that set was a mortgage payment. Don't get me wrong. Like This is what I do all day, every day is cook. And this was something that I have sought after my entire life and I saved up for a long time to do. So those I would say are the best pans uh, given my very fortunate situation to be able to have them. Uh, it really depends on what you're doing, but I love pans that give you control. Copper uh, to me is key. I also really like black steel, uh, which is a carbon steel, other sometimes called as well. Uh, those are sort of naturally non-stick, but they're non-stick at a lower temperature than say a, a cast iron would be. They're also very easy to maintain, and I think they're also very elegant and beautiful. Uh, they're also relatively inexpensive. Uh, you can get a really good one for $30. You know, I think the most expensive ones that I have might be $50 or so um, for a nice big saute pan. So something like that. But those are saute pans, really, that you would use. Uh, I would look at some of those copper-lined ones. Uh, All Clad, I know, makes an, a nice version of those. Um, and then in terms of, you know, heavy bottom pans, I have a whole mixture. So I have this copper set. And then I have a bunch of, and I'm very fortunate for this, and this was, these were given to me as part of one of my cookbooks, uh, but Staub, excuse me, Staub, the, uh, the producer gave me a whole bunch of props basically for the photo shoots in my book. So I have some thick you know, ceramic ones, the, these glazed ones like this, the Staub Le Creuset style. I really like those, the Dutch ovens, the casserole dishes, uh, little saute or fish pans like this. Those of you who have joined me on this before know that it's kind of odd that I'm not actually currently cooking with this because I cook with it so much. Uh, and this I love because it transfers perfectly from stove directly into the toaster oven in which it fits perfectly. Uh, and I really like uh, pans that generally can do that, that can transfer from top to bottom, you know, uh, stove top to oven. Uh, seamlessly. That's that's a big thing for me because I oftentimes will finish whatever I'm doing. I'll start it in the stove and then I'll finish it underneath to give me space and mental space too. So that's that. Uh, but again, Mary, it sort of comes down to to budget. I mean, if you're if you're willing to drop fifteen hundred dollars uh, and outfit yourself in this really totally great situation, go with Staub, look at some of the, the Moviel lines, M-O-M-A-U-V-I-E-L. Um, you know, the all clad pans are, are very good. Uh, then when it comes to the nonstick, I would say Misen, M-I-S-E-N. 
Uh, they've made some pans that I understand to be uh, non-toxic, uh, that I understand to be very well priced, uh, and the ones that I have used uh, have proven very good to me. Um, in fact, I have one, one right here that I got very hot the other day, and then my son ran into me at a certain point in my body, and I dropped it. Um, so it's a little deformed now, but um, yeah. Anyway, it's still a very good pan, and I wash it only with water and paper towel, and we're good to go. So if you can't tell, I have a very well-outfitted kitchen, and I'm very thankful and very fortunate for that. So anyway, I appreciate the question, but uh, I apologize that there's no sort of silver bullet answer for you there. All right. From Dr. Jacqueline. Hi there. Welcome. Nice to see you. A nice new name for me. 1974, you ceased eating animals. Good for you. In 2013, moved to Ecuador. Nice. Fun. I wonder what part you are in. And watch native fishermen unload daily catches. Life is good. 2015, it began to occasionally eat fresh local seafood. And you're nearly 75 female health conscious. And is my health being harmed? If so, how much? Wow. Um, so there's a lot to unpack in this, but uh, first and foremost, good for you for, it seems, making some great life decisions all along the way. Um, so omega-3 fatty acids are, ex are very important in our diets. Uh, and I am not a health professional. I'm not a, a licensed uh Nutritionist, uh, I have spent a lot of time in that field and studying it and working alongside some of the best and brightest in the, in the world. Uh, the bottom line is that outside of the vegetarian diet, a, a diet rich in omega-3 fatty acids as part of a virtually all plant-forward diet is recommended. Uh, omega-3 fatty acids, especially when uh, talking about aging, help immensely with protective benefits for cardiac, as well as for warding off diabetes, as well as particularly for boosting and maintaining cognitive function as we age, as well as helping to uh, protect our vision, as well as boost our mood, etc. So there's a whole lot that is great about omega-3 fatty acids, but also the vitamin B as well as the vitamin D, selenium, uh, and a whole bunch of other micronutrients that come to us in the form of seafood. So, but it sounds like you, you've got some experience with a vegetarian diet under your belt, so you, you probably know how now to eat very healthfully there. Uh, so I would say that your diet is probably not being harmed uh, by any means. Uh, you know, you I, I would say that that's probably a, a, a big step to say that you're being harmed. Uh, so long as you're getting the host of vitamins and minerals that you need, you are eating a diverse diet, you are getting all the amino acids you need, uh, a little bit of seafood here and there is only going to contribute uh, in positive ways. So I would say that really the key when we, when most people, when, Oftentimes when you hear about omega-3s, most often you're hearing about them in the traditional American diet, which is very heavy in red meat. And so the attendant um, benefits of increasing omega-3s in your diet are also oftentimes dependent on decreasing your consumption of red meat. So in fact, when, a, when you decrease red meat consumption two times a week and increase consumption of omega-3 fatty-rich acid seafoods like salmon by twice a week, basically we're swapping out two meals for two meals, uh, there's an attendant 36% reduction in cardiac mortality incidences. 
when you look at overall mortality incidences, it's about 17% reduction. Uh, so those are pretty drastic numbers. But again, that is relative to reducing red meat as well. So I would say there is no harm being done. I, I'd say you're probably on a really good path. But that seafood, especially those rich in omega-3 fatty acids, is a great idea for all of us But um, who choose to consume seafood, uh, but especially for those of us as we age. So, Dr. Jacqueline, I appreciate your question. I appreciate you, you coming to us from, uh, from the wilds of Ecuador, too. That's really fun. Appreciate you. All right. Judith, hi, friend. You're a proud owner of two of my cookbooks. Well, thank you very much for the support, which you use constantly. Is there any chance I could purchase a third signed copy? Of course you can. I would be so honored for that. Uh, please reach out to me, anybody who would like a, a cookbook signed, maybe as a gift for anyone in your life. I'd appreciate that for the holidays coming up. So I, I do have eight books out there. Um, yeah, eight books, most of them on seafood, but I did write a book called Foods for Health with my colleague, Dr. PK Newby over at Harvard. We published that with National Geographic. That was a really fun one. That's not a cookbook, but it's a compendium of, of sustainability and health information around 100 different ingredients. Uh, that's out there in the world as well. I have a National Geographic Kids cookbook that I wrote as part of my work with them. That's still out there. That's a really fun gift. But for any of you who are interested, and Judith, thank you for the question and the ability now to open the door to this. Drop me an email, barton, barton at ruby.com, and I'd be happy to make arrangements for you. And it's kind of you to ask. Thanks, Judith. All right. Another Judith. Hi, Judith N. Uh, I'm cooking for one. Awesome. Do you have any organizational suggestions that help me have variety in my meals? What kind of containers do I use for freezing? Um, okay. Well, that was going to be my first go-to is to say freezing, uh, which is to say if you are doing things that require batch cooking, uh, you know, anything with a butternut squash, for instance, because they don't you know, they're big, et cetera. Uh, and this is something that we do in our house a lot is that I make big batches of things, but we want diversity in our diet. So I have quite a few meals in the freezer at all times that I cycle through. So that would be my first thing to, to sort of is to, to recommend is to stock up the freezer with a number of different things. Uh, I think necessarily more than the ingredients uh, in terms of the organization, I would say the easiest diversity to bring into your diet would be sauces, would be spices, would be cuisines. So the same ingredient, let's just say that butternut squash, uh, one night can be a part of a pad thai, right? Uh, the next night, that same squash could be in a traditional soup with a sauteed mushroom and tarragon garnish with a little bit of brown rice in there or something like that, right? And the next night, it could be in a Middle Eastern meze platter. You can make hummus out of the butternut squash, etc. So that's what I would say is, is sort of it, it, in terms of the organizational is that having that stocked pantry of, of having the tahini and the olive oil in order to be able to make the uh, the tahini or the butternut, the, excuse me. I don't sleep much very often. Yeah, right there. My vocabulary is suffering because of it. Um, yeah, if you have, if you have sort of a big pantry that allows you to rotate in different flavors constantly, that's, that's the way I do it. Um, and yeah, I, it's sort of where, where I would leave it with that. So, um, 
I am cooking for four these days. Uh, two of two of those mouths voracious, and so my I am sort of far from the thought process on this right now because I'm I'm entering the weeds of having two boys and, and having to cook for them. So um, anyway, I, I hope that helped, Judith. I appreciate you joining us today. All right, from Dr. Jacqueline again. Hey there. Uh, how can I best preserve fresh eggs for later baking? Our hens are giving us too many to eat or to pickle. Um, so I had this problem myself. Uh, we had just way too many eggs. I would have six or seven dozen on hand at any given time with our chickens. Uh, one thing is that we never washed the eggs, and so they could stay at room temperature, and they would hold on the countertop for several weeks, uh, as is basically the case in most countries, and I'm sure in Ecuador as, as well, where you are, I believe. So part of it would be just to consider not washing them uh, and leaving them. So when we were doing chickens, we have a, a sailing marina just kind of corner to our house here. And we would sell eggs to a lot of long distance sailors uh, unwashed because they would store well unrefrigerated out, out in ocean conditions. So that would be the first thing I would say. Uh, and in terms of otherwise, uh, you know, if you have little freezing containers, um, or little plastic baggies or whatever you can do, you can just whip them up, <coughs> freeze them. I, I am not sure you, I am not a baker. So I know that they like pasteurized frozen eggs work well in baking. So I can't imagine why a, an egg, uh, just whipped and then, and then frozen in bags wouldn't work as well. But, um, Give it a try before you go uh, all in on it and freeze, you know, 10 dozen eggs or something in the way I just described, but uh, mess around with it. And that brings me back to Judith's question earlier when she asked if I have any, uh, what are the best, what do I use for the freezer? And uh, we got, what do I have for the freezer? Glass lock. Glass lock, all one word. I guess that's the brand that we found. Uh, and those are uh, PBA free. They're, they have all the they have all the right acronym freeze associated with them, so we're not putting carcinogens into our food and all that. But so glass lock is is what we use. Also, um, uh, I believe seventh generation plastic bags as well. So for soups and stuff that are easier to freeze by you know a couple like three cups at a time and lay flat so that we preserve a little bit more space. All right. Hey, Anna, how are you? Hey there. Any recommendations on fish scalers and scaling in general? I usually find fish scales in my kitchen for two weeks after cooking. Yes. So here's my first uh, uh, recommendation for scaling fish. Do it outside if you can, because just, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, fish scales will get everywhere. The next thing I would say is take a plastic shopping bag and uh, use it as a glove or a sheath over it. Uh, just, you know, it doesn't need to be locked around. You still need to see what you're doing so you don't get stabbed with one of the, the dorsal fins, et cetera. But it's, it's mostly it throws them off up and out this way. And so a plastic bag is going to take care of probably 95% of that uh, just there. Excuse me, let's just this. Um, plastic bag is going to take care of about 95% of that. So just use it as a big glove and work within it. Uh, and I'm assuming that you're probably not doing massive fish, like a giant long mahi or something like that. Um, 
that if you are uh, just putting a, a towel over the top, just a, a Terry, you know, just a, a kitchen towel and working, working underneath it like this will give you plenty of control. And now there's only this very small area over here from which the scales can found. So, but I am with you. I, I was a fish butcher. I, I, I was a graduate fellow and taught the fish butchery class at the Culinary Institute of America for over, oh, over a year and a half. And uh, yeah, I would find fish scales on me like days later. Like I would have taken six showers and scrubbed down and fish scales. It, it was just, they'd just be one in my hair. And it was like, yeah, I was a clean person and yet fish scales found their way. And we find them on the ceiling in here every now and then. It's just the way it is. So do it outside, bag, um, towel. And in terms of a fish scaler, You can use the back of a spoon, but I like these very much. This is a Japanese fish scaler. I think I found this down in a, a Chinatown somewhere, which I know is not Japanese, but I it was a Japanese store down in Chinatown, I believe in New York, um, maybe in San Francisco. But what I like about this, you can see the combed or toothed edge. Those are not sharp by any means, but they are perfectly spaced. So they get between the scales. Uh, and so there's a lot more sort of cupping motion rather than just scraping. And that is a recommendation I would make is also to, you're trying to lift. And when you do that, you're also helping by lifting them, you're not shooting them, right? So you're actually helping to make it a little uh, cleaner. But by kind of scooping up like this, it, it's not this exaggerated motion, just, just always be working up. The reason why? is that if you're working down, and I'm just gonna turn this over so I don't damage my cutting board. If you're pushing down and scraping, where's the pressure? It's on your delicate fish. Don't do that, the fish didn't hurt you. Let the fish be. Just cupping like that, just slightly, always be thinking about moving off the fish rather than trying to move into it is the way to do it. And this thing here, I think this cost $6.99, $7.99. Uh, it's lasted me many years, far longer than the label uh, printing on it did, either the wood or on the metal. So um, something like this, I'm sure you can find one online, but uh, you don't need an expensive fish scaler. Even the back, of a, the back of a spoon will work fine. I don't particularly like that because you have to, it has very acute pressure <clears throat> on the fish. So and if you see, if I do that on my finger, what do you get? You get an indentation you're going to damage your fish this way. That's another reason why I like this one is that it's broad. And so it spreads the pressure, any pressure you put on the fish out greatly. There you go. Thank you. Appreciate the question from Brianna was curious about the liquids and other legumes from uh, like beans. If they have uses like aquafaba from chickpeas, you know, Brianna, I actually don't, I, I don't really know. I, I assume that they would, uh, as the, um, Nutritional profiles of many beans are, are more similar than, uh, than not. So I would assume that there would be uh, some great nutritional and, and sort of culinary benefit to using them. So go ahead and check those out. Uh, I, I opened up a can of soldier beans the other day, <coughs> uh, and the liquid seemed a lot denser and a lot thicker, probably starchier than that of an aguafaba or a chickpea. Uh, but it certainly had use, and it thickened up what I was trying to do with it very well. So... Uh, 
anecdotally, there you go. But uh, if you send an email to, you know what, we'll, we'll forward that question on to one of our plant-based experts uh, and, <coughs> excuse me, I'm so sorry, uh, and get back to you uh, with an answer, a little bit more fuller answer for you there. Hey, I appreciate you. Thanks, Brianna. From Lana, Hi, holiday greetings. Hi, friend. What kind of seaweed do you recommend to add to our diet? Uh, considering ocean contamination and our potential exposure to it, is the farm seaweed safer? Uh, wow, great question. So what I recommend is domestically produced seaweed. Uh, and what I would recommend also is kelp. Kelp is probably, it's just the most advanced of the seaweeds in terms of the farming industry in the United States, uh, both in the Pacific and in the Atlantic coasts. Um, it is uh, very safe. The waters are monitored. Uh, the toxicity and exposure there is monitored. So it is all measured. So you can be sure that you are getting a safe product. Uh, I know that a lot of the product that is coming in from various parts in Asia is not as well regulated. Uh, and there is certainly some really great product coming in. Uh, but there's some unregulated less regulated, unregulated product coming in as well. And I don't know how to tell the difference between the two. So I go with domestic. Plus, I really like supporting our domestic farmers. Who are our domestic farmers? It's my neighbor, <laughs> literally right there. So, oh, and my other neighbor, literally right there. And the woman that walked by my house and I waved to just before this started. So uh, if you buy Atlantic Sea Farms kelp, uh, you are literally supporting the three people that I just spoke about uh, here on the coast of Maine. It is a brilliant product. It is available fresh and fro uh, fresh frozen, really, which has is is an absolute analog. Uh, so fresh straight out of the water and straight out of a bag from the freezer is going to be exactly the same, just by virtue of how the the leaves or the cellular structure of seaweed is. Uh, for example, seaweed grows here in Casco Bay in Maine. Uh, a meter a week, two meters a week, even in February, when the temperature, water temperature is, is literally lethal, um, and the air temperature is negative 20 degrees, and this stuff is still growing. It's meant to freeze and be in very, very cold temperatures. Um, and the cells are on the outside rather than on the inside. There's not a, a sort of vascular system because they absorb uh, nutrients directly from the seawater around them rather than plants, which pull them up from the roots. So there's less sort of structure to freeze and to break and to be damaged. So uh, frozen kelp from Atlantic Sea Farm straight out of the freezer is incredible. There's puree that's great for smoothies. There's like a, a chopped cut, which is great for sauces, pestos, etc. There's also a slaw cut, which is great for adding to coleslaws or sauteing, etc. And a leaf cut as well. Um, the the women, the brilliant uh, visionary women who are behind Atlantic Sea Farms are, are good friends of mine and very much admired heroes here in Maine. So check them out. They also have some wonderful fermented products. They have a sea chi, which is like a kimchi, a fermented version, uh, as well as a sauerkraut that involves kelp too. So check those out, please. Uh, that's what I would recommend. But uh, other forms of domestic seaweed that I would really recommend, dulse is another one. Uh, it is a red algae. Uh, and that is, it has a completely different flavor profile and you can find that mostly wild. I'm not, there's not a lot of commercial farming of that right now, but I trust those sources. Uh, Maine coast sea vegetables is, is a great one for that. All of this can be found online. Um, and I would also recommend uh, that I wrote a book on seaweeds 
called Sea Greens Superfood. And if you, you Google it, it's now out of print because oddly enough, not a whole lot of people wanted a book on seaweed. Anyway. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not offended anyway, but that book is out there and my colleague Katie and I put a lot of research into that. Um, it's a fun book with a lot of great, uh, recipes and information about how to, uh, get it into your diet. So though it is out of print, there are still, uh, several thousand copies out there in the world. So, Hey, I hope that helps. And Lana, thanks for your question and joining us today. Appreciate you. From Jackie, hi chef, was wondering about oven placement. When it's best to cook things on the top shelf or the bottom shelf for the middle, especially if using more than one baking sheet at a time. I often end up burning my baked goods. Thanks. Okay, Jackie. Well, um, I gotta say, it really depends on your oven. So uh, my oven is a vaulted oven. Um, and yeah, it's a it's a little little tough to answer. So whenever you have anything on a baking sheet, you are blocking heat, the rise of heat, right? So you're creating an obstacle over around which, and then over and undulating that heat must flow. So if you have multiple things in your oven, you are creating a very effective heat barrier, right? Where the heat is going to rise, hit, and then sort of pool beneath it as it creeps up the sides. So you're creating a different environment or ecosystem in which the heat reacts. Especially when you have multiple layers of impediments to the heat rising uh, is going to be really difficult. So one thing, if, if, if you're burning your baked goods, uh, I would bake less of them at one time. Uh, it also sounds like your oven might have some hot spots to it. All ovens do. Um, even very well calibrated ones will have just uh, you know, I mean, if you're pushing heat into a box, there's going to be some areas that are just going to behave differently than others just by thermodynamics. So all ovens have some hot spots. Try and figure those out and then rotating your baking sheets, turning them, you know, a quarter turn, a half turn, et cetera, or even switching sides with them if you have two, two sheet pans on the same level. But generally, when you want super high heat, you go towards the top because that is where the heat is going to settle. That's also oftentimes where your broiler unit is. Uh, and many ovens these days have dual heat functions where they will heat from both top and bottom. That's where you go to get hot. That's where you go to get color. That's where you go to cook quickly. Uh, on the bottom, I have found that that's where things cook via contact with the sheet pan more than sort of with the oven, right? because the heat rises, heats that sheet pan, which is metal and conductive very quickly. And so you're kind of acting a little bit like a saute pan at this point, right? You're in direct contact with the pan that's transferring the heat, heat then undulates over. So I find for the most even and sort of moderate cooking is in the middle where you get the influence of both the rising heat as well as the undulating heat. Hope that helps for your science lesson. There you go. Appreciate you, Jackie. From Daniel P. Hi, friend. How do you store and organize your recipes at home, at least? Get ratings from family members. Wow, that's a good one. Um, well, just to, be, just to be honest, I don't. Um, I, I, sort of, I don't really cook from recipes. And when I do, I, I cook them from books. Uh, most of my books are pretty well dog-eared. Um, but I'm also lucky that I get to spend most of my days thinking about this stuff. So I kind of keep it top of mind. Uh, I don't know. That's kind of a fun question. Um, 
maybe someone else uh, here has a, maybe someone else in the uh, of the class here has uh, something to contribute to that better than I can. So uh, we'll wait to see if somebody else chimes in. Please do. All right, another question uh, from Daniel. How do you change your cooking method for copper pan versus stainless steel pan? I cook with no oil, if that matters. Uh, I, I, there's really no change to the cooking method other than the responsiveness of the heat. Uh, copper is the very is the most conductive of all metals, and so it's just going to be the most responsive. So basically, let me let me rephrase your question here. Um, do I take a different route to the store in my Lamborghini or in my Ford? Uh, and the answer is no, unless you want to take the fun route and go with your Lamborghini a long way, right? And get there at the same time. So it's sort of just the performance of the metal, not the function of the metal, really, that matters in the end there. Oil or no oil. Cool. Good question. Thanks, Dana. Uh, Jacqueline, hi, doctor, again. Uh, you live off the grid and own a KitchenAid mixer but have no attachment for pasta or frozen desserts. What are my best options for making either pasta or frozen desserts by hand? Um, so there are... Uh, so for pasta, there's some really great countertop you know, I mean, this is the model that Italian nanas have been using forever. Um, when I say that, just the, the culture there, I just immediately went back to a pasta class that I took when I was over in Italy one time with this wonderful old older woman who had been making pasta by hand literally every day of her life since she was maybe four years old and using this hand crank machine uh, that seemed really rudimentary, but are really very sophisticated. Uh, they are also not very expensive. I believe that Atlas uh, is the brand that I have. It's out in my garage, um, so I can't look at it right now. But Atlas, um, I know, is either the one that I have or the one that my father had forever and ever and used. So I can recommend that one. I think they're thirty-nine bucks or something like that. Um, if you can, if you can find one down in Ecuador or, or get one via mail. So that's what I recommend for pasta. Uh, also, just then there's the age-old method of pasta, which is just rolling by hand with a rolling pin. A little more involved, obviously, but, uh, you know, a wonderful way to spend time, if you ask me. Uh, and in terms of frozen desserts, I'm assuming that you're thinking about whipping here. Um, and I'd just say uh, elbow grease. Sorry, there's not much uh, outside of an electric beater or a handheld, you know, maybe even a battery-operated you know, stick blender, wand blender, something like that. I don't know if you would want to go that direction, but um, I believe that in one of your previous questions, you used the word, you know, the plural uh, in your pronoun when you, when you said we live on the coast of Ecuador. Uh, I, I believe I heard you say that. So maybe for the frozen dessert, I would enlist some help. There you go. Forgive me if I was wrong on that there, but uh, there you go. Hey, thanks so much for all your great questions. I really appreciate you joining. It's, it's wonderful to have a new friend. From Daniel again, hey, I'm having trouble getting usable aquafaba from chickpeas I make myself. Too liquidy. Any tips? Um, I don't know about that, uh, Daniel. I'm not, I'm not a, a whole food plant-based expert. Uh, aquafaba is something I use, but I'm, I'm not expert on. Again, I will ask uh, my colleague Patrick for whom I am eternally grateful for, my colleague Patrick at Ruby, uh, to forward that question on to one of our plant-based educator experts there uh, to get back to you. But I'm, I'm assuming that the answer there would just be volume of, of water going into the, the pot initially. Um, 
because I can't imagine there being much variance, uh, such a huge variance in the quality of chickpea itself if you've tried this multiple times and, and gotten uh, similar similar errant results. So, But we will get you a, a better answer, a good answer for this from someone else. All right. Okay, thanks, Daniel. From Patty, is it possibly to properly caramelize in a nonstick skillet? Uh, absolutely. Uh, heat is key there in moderating the heat. Uh, adding it in hot is the way that I like to do it if you're not using oil. Uh, so putting it in hot and allowing that caramelization to happen quickly. I know that there's other other camps that say, and Ruby itself might, might even say that uh, it's to... Uh, start it slowly and sort of burn into those sugars. But uh, my take on that is that the enemy of caramelization is water and lower heat creates steam, whereas higher heat uh, certainly steams off the water there, but also more immediately gets to the Maillard reaction and that caramelization. So that's the way that I have always done it. And you can always lower your temperatures to get the further cooking that you need. So anyway, I hope that helps. Let's see, okay. Thanks, Patty. I appreciate your question. From Marion, I used an app called Paprika for organizing recipes. Daniel, this is for you, for your answer here. Uh, Paprika for organizing recipes has many useful functions that help. Cool. Well, thanks, buddy. Uh, I appreciate that, Marion. Um, I wonder if it has maybe even a voting, you know, if you can, if you can, well, I'm sure you could leave notes on it to say which, which person, which family member thought what of it. So I'm sure you could probably rank or organize them by some, some means there. So yeah, I hope that helps. So, okay. Uh, another one from Anna. Do I have any, qu uh, let's see, that question just appeared and disappeared. Do I have any recommendations for a text on fish butchery? Um, yes, I do. It's called The Whole Fish by Josh Nyland, N-I-L-A-N-D. Uh, it's a very good book. It is a very popular book with chefs right now that are seeking to use more of each fish that we capture and, and cook. So there's a lot in it that, you know, butterflying the liver, et cetera, and all sorts of different things that you might not need to dive into yet. Uh, but it certainly goes from, from whole down to filet. Also, I would recommend either of my uh, sort of fish instruction centric cookbooks. I have one called For Cod and Country. Ha ha ha. Right? Great pun. Uh, that was my first book for Cod and Country. I have some detailed uh, information in there, as well as in uh, a more recent book called Two If By Sea. Um, has some fish instru fabrication instruction in there. But really, uh, Josh Nyland's The Whole Fish is, uh, is the best book that I think is out there right now. Uh, James Patterson's Fish and Shellfish books are also really great. Um, he's, he's one of the better cookbook writers, in my opinion. So there you go. Cool. Oh, there is the question. Cool. Well, oh, the question also included cooking. Well, Anna, that's what I do. I write cookbooks about cooking fish. Check out all my books. Um, and I would say uh, very nearly that they are textbooks, uh, especially... Uh, my most recent book called Joy of Seafood, which is almost a thousand recipes, just most of them based on your what's it probably in your pantry. Um, but uh, all my books that I had mentioned are really, that is my purpose, is to write textbooks to get people eating more seafood more often, more deliciously. So I, I hope you would check those out. Thanks for any support if you choose, but uh, thanks for your question and joining the Ruby family.
All right, from Mary Ellen. Hey, friend, again. I uh, heard that the iron from cast iron leaches into your food. Is it okay to cook daily in them? I have not heard that. Um, I also haven't gone looking for that, uh, but I will do a, a Google search on that uh, after the fact because I'm curious now. But I would also say that uh, we have been using cast iron now for so long uh, in this human family we ours that I imagine it's probably just considered all but considered safe at this point. So I, I'm interested in, in, in learning more about that, but uh, I've, I've never heard any evidence to the contrary of them being safe. So sorry, I don't have a, a direct answer, but here you go. Already done. Well, thanks, Anna. I see you did that. Thanks for uh, thanks for jumping in on the support. All right, from Marion again. Uh, holiday, happy holidays, of course. I enjoyed your seafood literacy course. Well, thanks, buddy. I appreciate you taking that. Um, oh, well, that's just a nice... It's just a nice message. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you in 2022 as well. So I'm not signing off just yet today, but thank you for that very nice message and happy holidays to you and your family as well. I hope you have a most delicious few weeks ahead of you until we reunite again. From Oristella. Hi, friend. Nice to see you again. Suddenly, when I place something in the oven, <coughs> excuse me, I notice that the front of the pan is cooking faster than the rest of the pan. Interesting. I noticed this with pans on the range. One side of the pan gets hotter than the rest of the pan. Why? Interesting. Um, I'm going to say you have a broken pan there. And I don't know how a pan would break necessarily in that way, uh, but it seems like maybe that you have a triple ply, that there's multiple layers of metal in there, as most pans are made. They're not you know, single fabrication, but rather it's metal layered upon metal. Uh, and I would imagine maybe that via some circumstance, whether it was overheated or then it got banged up as like this one did here. So I am sure that with this, I separated a few of those layers, even if microscopically so, that will affect your heat conductivity. And I think that's that is my that is my wild guess as to what has happened there, is that some damage has created some separation in those layers, and that heat conductivity is those metals are no longer touching, even just microscopically so. That heat has to jump; it's not going to do so as effectively. So that's why you're getting that uneven cooking, both stovetop and in the oven. But it's great to know that it's not in the oven only, because then you could say hot spot. But on the stovetop, I would say that is a now flawed pan. Um, yeah. And if it in fact is that, uh, I hate to say this, but don't give it to Goodwill because then somebody else will just end up with a flood pan. So, but I hate to say anything go into the trash. So maybe, maybe there's another use for it. I hope, but, uh, there you go. All right, Stella. Great question. That was kind of fun to just kind of imagine an answer for that. I hope, I hope, I hope I was right. Cheers. All right. And from Mary, last question of the day here. So enjoyed this open office, Chef. Thank you so much. I'm inspired. Future Chef Mary. There you go, Chef Mary. Well, thank you. That was a very nice way to sign off. I appreciate all of you. I really do. Cooking is an act of love. It is an act of kindness. And that you chose to come here today means that you have love and kindness in your heart. And I appreciate being in the company of those who do. So with that, happy holidays to you and to yours for the rest and have a happy, wonderful rest of this 2021. Let's all look forward to a delicious 2022 together in a happy, healthy, safe, peaceful world. 
Bon appétit, yo. Bye now.